Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. And we are live. It is value after hours. It's 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast. It's 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. All the changes to daylight saving and so on. I've got no idea where it is uh, globally. Um, I'm joined as always by Bill Brewster and Hello. my our special guest today, Carla Scanlon. How are you, Carla? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you're our macro specialist, so we we've been <laughs> we're value guys who've been talking macro. We're way over our skis, so we've got a laundry list of stuff that we want to talk to you about, and hopefully, you can help us out. <laughs> Try my best. <laughs> Good luck. No promises. <laughs> Where are you based? Um, I'm in Denver right now. Yeah, Denver, Colorado. Very cool. What's happening in Denver? Um, a lot of stuff. It's not snowing. Apparently, mushrooms are legalized here. <laughs> so, uh, a lot of stuff that I don't know about. Yeah. <laughs> this is what you learn when you talk to me pre-show. <laughs> what about you, Billy? What's happening in uh, Florida? Uh, not much. Friday, I drove around, visited some small caps. That was kind of fun. Got my energy going. I need to do that more. I enjoy that part of life. Do you Good find, things happen when you get out and talk to people. Do you find when you meet with them, you're more, unlikely, you're more likely to invest with them than you would otherwise be? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I, don't I have know. this theory that everybody who gets to become CEO or C-suite is like super charismatic. And so when you meet them, you just happen to like them because they're great sales people for the most part. And then you yeah. become more inclined to invest. You sort of can't switch off the, how much you like them. I don't know. How many micro cap CEOs have you talked to? Yeah, that's a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it's the uh, cream of the, uh, the crop when it comes to political game. Um, but yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I probably bought Berkshire for the first time because I like Warren and Charlie, right? So, uh, did you meet him? Just read no, but stuff. just like hearing him. I mean, you know, that's fair enough. How, how other how would you otherwise make the decision? I, I guess you could sit there and read, but like that's my version of hell. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not uh, capable of just like not meeting people. Well. Now that we've got Kyla here, there's there's so much crazy stuff. So Kyla, I, I have a uh, your 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 background is in macro, but your sort of t I was t I was saying to Kyla before we started that um, I see more of Kyla on Instagram than I do on Twitter, and my Instagram feed is almost entirely uh, kettlebells, UFC, and dudes eating raw meat. So that's that's <laughs> that's her algorithm has selected for that. Oh, I don't know why. <laughs> that makes no sense. I, I need to very, follow you. I find it a little jarring, funnily enough, that it comes in like that. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of, this has been a wild, wild week. I think I, we tweeted out something saying this is the, the craziest macro environment backdrop that we've, that certainly I've in, probably encountered in my, in my short. I called the bottom. Life. I had my Ackman moment when I cried on value after hours. Did you, I did you much call bottom ticked it? Were, were you, no, you... hell no. I didn't call it. <laughs> I, was, I was scared and crying and that happened to be the bottom. 
<laughs> yeah, I think most a lot of people have pointed out that the super bearish that our super bearish podcast last week was the bottom, and I think we're like up ten percent or something since then. So well, well oh, done, you're all, all of us again. I think one of the things that really stood out to me over this last week that the two, the ten year has exploded again. The ten year is ripping up. Uh, Kyla, can we can we? What what what's going on? Why is that happening? <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> easy I, I, one. Just an easy one to start <laughs> off. Just to ease you in. Yeah, I mean, I, it's mostly probably the Fed and just trying to figure out what the Fed is doing. So they rose rates by 25 basis points. And then Jerome Powell spoke in front of NABE yesterday and came off a little bit more hawkish and just basically like, yeah, we could probably do 50 basis points maybe sometime soon. And so the market was like, oh, wow, like that's super wild, dude. And so I think that's what the market is trying to digest right now is what does a really hawkish Fed look like? And can the Fed actually do what they think they can do without cratering the economy? So I think that's what it's a little worried about potentially. Yeah. Do you have that answer for us? Do I have the answer of yes, the cratering? Yes, <laughs> that would be nice if you could tell us. Um, I mean, I'm not sure. Because like Jerome Powell, he said yesterday that he doesn't think a recession could come anytime soon next year, he said. Uh, and I don't know. It's kind of concerning because there's just so many things going wrong that it's kind of hard to imagine that there wouldn't be a recession. But the labor market is still relatively strong and they seem to think that they can sort of ease back the labor market and make it a little bit more manageable. So, you know, slow down wage inflation, um, make it so more people kind of go back into the labor force and ease some of the labor pressure. But I just think there's so much pressure from supply chains and just agriculture and commodities. And I just don't know how that'll price into the broader economy. Yeah. One of the um, indicators that I check in on every now and again, like, you know, Cam Harvey, uh, did this research where he said 10 year and I think it's 10 year and three month inversion mm-hmm. is the yield curve inversion typically indicates, or it has since sort of 1960 something has been a precursor to a recession. And so I have the 10 to um, from the, uh, is it the Alfred side or whatever, whatever it is that Fred? Um, the, the feds, the feds. Fred. Fred, so Fred, Fred, thank you. Yeah. Yes, so the the Fred side, and the ten ten three is nowhere near inverting. It's it's rocketing away. But if you look at, I've seen this in the in the like Twitter and in the media repeatedly that they're looking at all of these. Oh, quite a few of the other um, points on the curve have do seem to have inverted a little bit. So the ten two seems to be the one that gets quoted most often, and that's that looks like it's getting. It is getting pretty close to inverting, and that's also been a reasonable predictor. But it, it wasn't Cam Harvey's original formulation; that was ten three. But uh, uh, what, do you have any? Do you have any view? Are we is are we going to invert? Is inversion is that going to lead to a recession? What's happening? Yeah, I think Cam Harvey like it had to be inverted for ninety days to be a recession. Is that, is that, that right? is that the call? That, I, that's I, probably right. I forget the exact I, detail, but yeah, I think that if that's the correct um, paper, I think that was the exact statistic. But yeah, I mean, I think that broadly, like the yield curve is just flat. It's just pretty flat going into a tightening Fed. So that's just it doesn't give them a lot of room to sort of mess around, I guess. So I mean, I think that it'll depend on how the market sees stuff uh, and how they think the Fed is going to move forward. But yeah, I mean, they just they just don't have a lot of room to make a mistake. Francisco Scaramanga says the 10 three spread is not near the paper's list of probabilities right now. Yeah, that's what I observed too. Like it was really, really wide, but it seems to be that like that 
there there is quite a lot of discussion of it, and I think it's largely driven by the ten two. But that ten two is not the. If there's, it's funny that that sort of becomes the. Uh, yeah. yeah. Somebody said that Dylan Thomas says the inverted yield curve called caused called COVID. Yeah, I agree. I saw that too. Mm-hmm. We were talking yeah. about that a little bit beforehand. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I think that it, it that's definitely been a big data point is like, oh, the yield curve inverse and then there's a recession and, um, you know, when a recession happens, the Fed has to usually cut rates. So I'm not sure. Yeah. Where do they cut from? from here? <laughs> it's part of the problem. Yeah. They don't have any room. Well, well, I guess well, consumer confidence has come down a little. Well, I guess, I guess a fair amount since the peak, but bit, yeah. I don't know. I, I, housing starts strong, spending strong. I guess rate of change is what people look at, but it's tough. It's it's uh, it's tough to figure because the consumers, at least, uh, appears to be in really good shape. But how much of that inflation eats off? I don't know. Yeah, I think the consumer is just kind of unhappy. Like, I mean, housing starts might be going up, but like getting a house is seemingly near impossible to, uh, appear, uh, if you look at some testimonials on Twitter. Um, and then I think that people just are seeing inflation in the news. And there was a good paper by a former member of the Fed who basically wrote that inflation expectations are a core driver of inflation. So people like see inflation more, they're going to start pricing that into their personal economic model. And then it shows up more and it's kind of that um, feedback loop. So I think that there's a lot to worry about that. Yeah. 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 A lot of the oil guys uh, like to point out that the last time oil hit uh what was it it was like 140 in 2014 is that what it was um and they were like you know if you adjust that for inflation uh you know we we could see 180 to 200 here it's got to go over 180 or 200 to sort of rival that 140 in whenever that was yeah i think it was 2014 2015 yeah it's it feels to me I don't know. I, I don't know that all that much has changed from when we discussed this last week. Um, it seems to me that it's all of the pretty bearish stuff is out there other than probably those consumer sentiment ideas. No, I guess I'm sorry. It looks like 140 was 2008 ish around uh, June 30th of 2008. And then a hundred was uh, in 2014. If my data is accurate. And the, the equivalent today is like over 200, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what they say. So yeah. I don't oil, know. Yeah. I, oil is concerning too. Cause that goes into everything, you know, like it's not just gasoline for the cars. It's like in products, like it's in pens, it's in coffee mugs. Uh, oil makes so many different things. And there's been a lot of people calling for 200 and it just, I think that there's room for, you know, spare capacity for OPEC isn't that bad, but I just wonder if we're going to be able to make up the the loss from Russia. Um, that seems to be a big debate point as well. Yeah. That was when I was crying last week. That was what I was uh, oh, really? very concerned about. Uh, I wasn't actually crying, but I was, I was fairly close, but I think that that's true uh, in, among a lot of commodities and like, yeah. I don't know, you just see like bombing of schools and I, I don't know. The idea that that uh, even if there is some peace treaty that we're just going to sort of like say, OK, well, all, you know, all's well that ends well or whatever. I mean, it's not right. And you've got like uh, I, I just I don't know. The commodity complex seems really, really messed up to me. And I've just never seen that before. 
yeah, very fragile. We've seen, it's been a weird few years, right? Because we've had two years of um, supply chain issues because people can't work or all of the, the ships are, the containers are full, the ships are full. And so now we've got actual supply. The supply has just been cut off for a lot of things. It's hard to, I mean, that, that, that would understandably, that would lead to some like inflation, right? So it's just, uh, I find, I, this is why I, this is why I do think it's a difficult macro backdrop just to figure out what's going on because you contrast that with those consumer readings. Like they do seem to be very happy and here we, and yet here we are. It's a, it's a scary looking backdrop. Yeah. The, uh, I was talking to my buddy who, uh, is in, he works for a gas blender and he's in charge of the Northeast. And he was saying that, like, he's been saying gasoline is going to go higher for a while. He didn't think it would explode higher. The war kind of like accelerated what he was saying. But he said the other sort of thing that's happened is because the curve is so backward uh, in, in backwardation, I guess, what is it? Backwardated? I think that's how you would say it. He's like, there's just no incentive to hold inventory. So like everything that you have, you're selling it. So there's like no inventory in the system right now, except he made a shit ton last week because somebody called him up and they were like, do you want to buy whatever? I, I think it was in some pipeline or whatever. And he said, who are the sellers? And as soon as he heard, he said, give me everything they've got uh, because he realized they were getting liquidated on their mar- on their uh, hedge losses. Ooh. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like he had probably the best week of his career last, last week. Uh, cause he was just like buying force liquidation. So he's a gasoline blender. So he's not, he's not a trader. He's just buying it as an input. Yeah. So his backgrounds as a trader, he was trying to explain to me, like he knew that something funky would happen, um, because he was watching the open, the open interest in the front month contract and the open interest in the back month con- or in the next contract were like way off. And I, I, I forget what he told me. I need to have him like write it down and teach me how this stuff works. But like he looks at open interest all the time. But yes, what he does today, uh, the reason he has the view he has is he traded in New York for a long time. And then he moved to come back uh, to work with, uh, it's like a family company. uh, And they have a lot of storage facilities and then they blend and they send finished product. Like a cocktail mixer at the bar. Pretty much, yeah. He said uh, he... The only thing that I know is he told me he thinks Valero, he was like, if I'm ever on the other side of them, I'm terrified because mm. they are like very, very good at what they do. Still don't make much money. No. It's always it's not, not an easy game. That's not an easy game. Um, with Russia having all of the sanctions on it, is all of this money flooding into crypto? No. <laughs> Wait. Negative. Uh, so that's that's been uh, a narrative i think that some politicians have developed is that russia like broadly russia the entity government will use crypto to evade sanctions but that's just not there's no evidence of that happening i think individual russian people ukrainian people too are using crypto because their currencies are all over the place but <clears throat> like broadly russia is not using crypto to evade sanctions yeah i, I saw well, that that's uh, not that's countered a narrative kyla come on <laughs> sheesh well, yeah using I mean, facts 
<laughs> it's it's interesting because like it, it's it's a spin out of like trying to regulate it I think and trying to um regulate it in a bad way potentially so yeah it's in- the narratives are interesting around all this stuff like what people will say like especially how we were just talking about gasoline like on tiktok there's a bunch of different videos talking about oh like you know gasoline people like the the gas stations are price gouging and that this is all like so the big oil companies can make more profits and there's just such a big gap between understanding like how the system actually operates like it's not just price gouging um it's a little bit more than that it's how they are able to seek your contracts it's i guess whatever your your buddy did i don't quite understand it um and then with crypto, yeah, just like uh, saying these things that don't quite make sense, but it fits a broader thematic that people are trying to squish it into. You know? So what, what he did was, you know how like uh, a lot of, if, you, if you're producing like corn or whatever, a lot of people, well, I guess corn's not a great example, but oil, you can hedge it right in the future, mm-hmm. but you have a, the bank extends you a credit facility to allow you to do that hedge because you're losing on your hedge and then you're going to, you're going to deliver physical in the future. So it doesn't actually matter, but you have a paper loss in the interim. And what happened when the commodities ran, like they did was that like people's banks or whoever the, the lender was, was like, we don't actually want this much counterparty risk. So they called the, uh, or they didn't extend further credit. So it, it put people into a force, some people into a forced liquidation scenario. Mm-hmm. So he was the one that bought it. Value investing in the commodity space. One of my first jobs as a lawyer was uh, suing on ISDA agreements. And it was like suing on those tripartite agreements or, or not tripartite. They had like uh, interest rate currency and then whatever the underlying commodity that was not uncommon for them to sell them. And then if the person can't make good, then you, you sue on the contract. And we were huh. the ones who executed. We were the ones who actually did the suing. You were a sewer. Well, that's the job. <laughs> How many of those did you collect on? None. Yeah. You probably, I mean, your credit risk sucks. Yeah. So that's sad. Yeah. You just write it off, but you got to, you got to come up with some, um, you know, there's got to be some event so you can close off the, you can close off the contract. Hmm. So you have to sue in order to close out the contract. Well, you've got, you know, you've got a contract and, ha- and you've got to bring, you've got to terminate the contract and then, and then you've got to find a way to collect and you never get it. I mean, I didn't ever see it. I only did it for a few years and I, I don't know how many we processed in that period, like 50 or something. None, none of them collected. Yeah. Dude, people must have loved talking to you about their legal uh, bills. I didn't, I didn't do any talking. I just, yeah, they're, well, they're all, they're all big commodity or, you know, they're all, they're all like investment banks. They're like agricultural investment banks. They got plenty of money. Yeah. Doesn't mean they like the legal bills, though. Ah, they, were, they weren't that bad relative to what they were making. I'm sure. I'm sure they were happy with it. Yeah, that's fair. Um, let's talk about so one of the people that I worked for was was the grain board. Uh, let's talk about wheat. All right, what's going on? I have no idea. <laughs> we, I, I just, have, my my assumption on everything is there's a huge shortage of everything. Yeah. Russia and Ukraine produce a lot of wheat and that's just not there. There's a drought in China um, that really interrupted the planting season. There's just all these like uh, both natural and geopolitical events that are disrupting the agricultural flows. But wheat is, yeah, I think it's up like a huge amount, like 43% year to date, something 
just absurd. Uh, one of, I was reading something where there's this, I think he owns a bakery and he's very worried about securing his wheat. So it's, it's yeah. Input Everything is processes. really fucked. Like that's the technical term. So wheat, uh, the, the contract size is 5,000 bushels. So that's what we're quoting here. How much is a bushel? Uh, it's a bushel, man. Yeah. Um, that's a well-known anyway, unit from like 2019 through 2020, it was below 600 bucks the entire time. And it, I mean, I don't know what volume weighted, but it looks like right around 550. today. It's 11, uh, yeah. 1120. So double. And it really started to ramp when Russia, Ukraine popped off, but it was, it was higher. I mean, it was up at 775 before it went parabolic. It's hurt a few. It's hurt the consumers of grain, right? So Domino's Pizza has been beaten up because it's mm-hmm. uh, a big grain consumer. And I, I saw that some Domino's like head franchisee in one of the countries was worried about where he was going to get his grain. That might have been Australia. Right? I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's bizarre. I did hear that um, anecdata uh, that uh, so far the fast food chains have been able to push through a lot of cost increases and it has not impacted velocity, but I'm glad it's not going to impact the bottom line. I'd much rather that the end consumer pay for that. <laughs> well, no. that's that inflation. Is that, yeah, no, they... that's not what I'm, well, this is what I was saying yesterday. I mean, or last week it's, it's everything, right? It's I mean... like, like Kyla said, it's all your inputs with oil. It's your food. So I just don't know what that looks like. Cause I've never seen that. It does seem to be like it's it's coming apart at uh, at the seams, like at a at a lot. There's a lot of holes in the dike, right? There's a lot of pro, there's a lot of leaks in this in this thing, and like wheat prices are just one of them. Did you, did you say when you were chatting beforehand, Carl? What, what's the what's the fertilizer issue with wheat? Oh, I mean, that's just like, so if you think about uh, wheat, corn, et cetera, like all the agricultural products, I'm sure you'll know this, but like fertilizers uh, input to that. And then natural gas is an input to fertilizer. So you've had European consumers pull or producers pull back on fertilizer because natural gas has been so expensive. And then Russia is a huge producer of fertilizer. Belarus is a huge producer of fertilizer. And so a lot of farmers are not getting their fertilizer. Like I think one guy, he grows corn and he's not getting his fertilizer on time and that's going to cut his yield in half. Um, So it's, it's, that's also concerning is that like things are already super high and that's, I feel like we're being super like grouchy about all of this right now, but um, (laughs) that's also worrying is that, uh, yeah, like the planting season isn't even showing up in the prices right now and the lack of fertilizer to grow everything. Yeah. I mean, Typically, markets don't bottom on this kind of news, right? Typically, this is like the wall of worry. I think that's what people would say. And then the other thing is, it's more important to think about what the world looks like in 18 months or even 36 months because today's headlines were priced in before. Yeah. That said, this feels weird. The, the, what, what I have observed looking at, like, I'm, I'm an equity guy. So, looking at equity price crashes in the past is often the stock market sort of figures out that the worst has gone by before any of the fundamental data shows up, right? Like, it's not like March 2009. It wasn't like there were a whole lot of really good prints that came through that was the thing that caused the market to rally. The market just took off like a rocket. 
And then, like, we started seeing the prints for companies doing a little bit better and that, that they had bottomed. Is, is the same thing going on here? It's like it, we're just looking at trailing data, stitching a narrative together to it, and, and it, the market's already figured it out. It's all solved. We already live in the future. Kyla, you want to take a stab at that? I don't know. <laughs> I've, so like, I've only been an adult for the pandemic. Uh, well, that's not true. Like I've been an adult in the world. So like when I graduated college, the pandemic literally happened six months later. So I've only existed in this like really weird market environment. So I, in terms of like how the market thinks about stuff, like I feel like the market's not that smart, but I know that's like counterintuitive to what everybody seems to think about it. Like I, I just like tech rallying on on Jerome Powell saying that he was going to raise rates uh, like during his presser. That just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So I feel like the market is seeing some stuff that maybe like we're not. And I know that some of the banks have come out and been like, oh, earnings are going to be awesome for some of these companies because all they have to do is pass those costs off right to the consumers. Right. So perhaps, yeah, that wasn't a great answer, but um, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I, I think that like hyper growth, I I've been trying to think about this a lot. Cause I'm trying to think about whether or not I want to take exposure. And then if I do how to do it, and I think the answer, if I do is through an ETF, cause I'm clearly not the person that can generate alpha there. Um, but I do think that like, you know, if, if, uh, look, valuations have come down a lot and if, it is true that they can raise rates and the economy can go, can absorb that. Then, you know, I think it's a plausible case to argue that uh, growth in, you know, 24 months from here looks pretty darn good. And that's, I mean, that's what I've always been taught and read that that's how the market thinks about stuff. It's not what's going on today. It's what's happening at least 18 months from today. Yeah. What if we have a famine underneath and uh, luxury real estate at all-time highs on the top. What does that say about society? I think it would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, I think wealth disparity has gotten really bad. And that's part of the worry with the fertilizer and the food production is that, you know, the U.S. doesn't import that much from Russia, Ukraine. Like, definitely still a lot, but not nearly as much as Africa, you know. Um, right. So I think there's a lot of risk with that. But then you have people who are able, like there was a tweet the other day that was said that, and and I don't really agree with it, but they said inflation is a tax on the financially illiterate, which I thought was like a really mean way to say it. But um, if you're able to have a luxury home, you're probably going to have some sort of hedge against rising food prices. Right. So, yeah. If you, if you, if you own a lot of assets, you probably don't care that much about inflation because it's not like your assets are going to be, your assets are just repriced higher. But if you have to keep on buying stuff, then higher prices every time you go to buy stuff, particularly if you're on a, a salary or a wage that you have to go and negotiate that once every now and again, or you may not be in a position where you can negotiate it, you're always, you're always lagging behind. Your purchasing power is always being whittled away. And that's always going on. It's just that it becomes, it's much more obvious in, in times like this. Uh, that's why, you know, I'm, I've, I'm, I've, if JT and I often, you know, complaining about the Fed. I'm not a huge fan of all of the money printing that the Fed does for exactly this reason. And I think it, it leads on to some other bad things in the economy too. Uh, and some other, I mean, I think it's how we fund wars really. And if you take away that power, then you, 
you largely take away the ability to wage this sort of constant warfare all the time. Um, but that's that might be a little bit that might not be cheery enough for this for this podcast. So I'll, I'll keep what on if moving. what if uh, let's let's play some devil's advocate here. What if uh, you do. know the wages wages get increased uh, to um, offset inflation, and then supply chain ends up getting fixed over time. Prices come down, and now wages have gone up, and that sticks. Mm. That's a potentially cheery scenario. That'd be ideal. Like, hopefully, we're looking at the worst case scenario now. We just and it just slowly improves from here. Yeah, I do. I do worry a lot for third world and like developing countries. I, I think that the headlines are going to be really ugly over the next twelve months. It creates a lot of political instability. There's been talk of that Arab Spring too. Yeah. There's been a few of those. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, they- people aren't going to be able to eat. I mean, that's, that's, it's horrible. Yeah. And they, it's interesting too. So like Europe is now essentially a bidder in the energy market. So Europe and Asia and then emerging markets, economies get bid out because like Pakistan has not been able to get diesel, right? Because they just can't keep up with, with other bids um, to a certain extent. So that sort of stuff happens too, where um, it's just skewed. Yeah. What they need is substitutions. Bloomberg could give them some advice. Like evidently you can eat lentils instead of eating meat. Yeah. Uh That article was really something. It was so tone deaf. (laughs) Um, Yeah. The first sentence. Yeah. I'm not sure why they thought that was a good idea to publish. I didn't read the article, but I read the takes (laughs) of the article and I found the takes very funny. Yeah. Why were people saying kill your dog? Were they, did Bloomberg actually say like, get rid of your pets? Uh, they said that chemotherapy for your dog is ineffective. Um, so you should think about not doing that. Yeah. Oh, chemotherapy for the dog. Mm-hmm. I yeah, thought but- they saying keep the animals around so you got something to eat when it gets really bad. Oh, that would be so sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was a lot of stuff about lentils and then the dog thing, uh, gasoline. So thinking about that. And then they also said, don't buy in bulk. Which was interesting uh, was because that? I wasn't sure because that's kind of like the first thing, like that's what literally Costco's business model is, right? Uh, buy in bulk and save money. Because it's so, hoarding? That was one so. of the things that I was thinking. Maybe they're thinking that like if everybody buys in bulk, we create a run. Like toilet paper saga 2.0 from the pandemic. Why do people do that? You don't want to go with a toilet paper. It could be very bad. I guess. But like, I mean, when COVID was popping off, there was this woman <laughs> that had like two huge things of toilet paper. She, she and at that time, we were only supposed to be locked down for like two to three weeks. Mm. How much pooping is she doing? <laughs> well, she was she was smart because she foresaw that it was going to go on for a lot longer than that. Mm. Two years. Yeah. She yeah, she's yeah, still that got was a, longer than two weeks. She's got her pile of toilet rolls and they're almost down at the bottom, so she can come back out of the bunker now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder if like she's restoring. She's like Will Smith in uh, in that whatever it is the the zombie movie. She's come back out. She's the only one alive, oh, and she's God. still got toilet paper. That would be such a terrible world. Yeah. I was pretty mad at her. I I had not stocked up on toilet paper at that time. I saw a lot of people were returning their toilet paper when it turned out that it wasn't going to be that bad. No, 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 no. You can't do that. No, That's not, not okay. Not, 
Not yet, yeah, not not used. Obviously, You're just taking back. <laughs> I understand that. I understand that. But if it I didn't, was the it store didn't owner, it, I'd be like, "You're not returning toilet paper to me. No way." Uh, you might need to. Who knows? You've taken it. You've taken a big levered position in toilet paper. You've yeah. cornered the market. You're the yeah. Hunt brothers of toilet paper. That's fair. Your, yeah, uh, your trade is going to get cancelled. <laughs> what are Powell's options from here? It looks like a pretty nasty backdrop that we've been kind of talking about for a little while here. There doesn't seem to be a lot of room to lower. Do they hike a few times, <laughs> sort of hoping that they've got some then some room to go lower? Yeah, I mean, I think that seems to be what most people are agreeing upon is that they're going to try and hike as fast as they can um, and then probably cut eventually. Uh, So that seems to be what they're looking forward to is Fast and Furious Fed. Yeah. Yeah. Fast and Furious. (laughs) Yeah. And then they got to deal with the balance sheet and that'll be essentially another rate hike. So, I mean, I'd imagine that. And also they've got like all these people yelling at them. So I think there's a lot of sentiment that they're having to price into how they think about stuff. So they did 25 basis points this time around. And then, you know, you turn around and Bullard was yelling, oh, we should have done 50. And then Powell yesterday said that, you know, nothing was stopping them from doing 50. So I think that we could probably see 50 in the main meeting and then we'll hear more about the balance sheet then. And that'll give us a pretty good idea of how um how tight they're going to go yeah it's we're still like historically pretty loose though aren't we were down oh, where yeah. we are here yeah yeah that's the bad part i think I, well i don't know if good or bad is the correct terminology but yeah it's still very loose monetary policy because they did take their time and the market was telling them to hike sooner than they did um so you know, during the presser after the FOMC meeting uh, or during, yeah, during Powell's presser, um, he got asked if he was behind the curve a couple of different times. And each time he was like, oh, no, we're not. But I, I think that most people would say that they might be, you know. Hmm. The dot plot, has, have they ever followed the dot plot? Like they, I don't know when they started publishing the dot plot, but that's only a fairly recent invention. It's like the last few years, right? Five years, maybe. Mm-hmm. Has the dot plot ever predicted anything? They've always like just shot underneath the dot plot, right? Well, I mean, they've always had something kind of happen, right? So like in 2018, it was the repo crisis and they had to all of a sudden take care of that. So they've never been able to fulfill their plan. And so I, I like, I don't think that the market ever believes that they will. Like they're kind of like, okay, that's, that's cute, right? Like that's cute that you think you can do that. And that gives them a little bit of like idea on, on the neutral rate and sort of like thinking about where that could be, but I, I don't know if the Fed ever, I'm sure they've obviously like met it before, but recently in the past decade, I don't think so. There's always going to be an excuse to not hike though, right? Like if you look mm-hmm. back any, any stock market history, there's every year or something, there's some event that's big enough to justify uh, a cut again or not hiking. Like that's what I just thought we've gone through COVID. We're ready to hike. And then, oh, here's the Russia's invaded Ukraine. So there we go. There's another reason not to hike. So they'll just keep on saying we're going to hike. And 25 basis points, like that's neither here nor there, right? That's <laughs> meaningless, really. And so they keep on just saying we will hike at the next one and see what the see what the market says. It's like a, it's a verbal hiking rather than ever having to actually ever do it. Yeah. It's slam poetry. That's what I call it. That's like literally, <laughs> they all come out and they all talk and then the market responds. Like literally after 
Powell spoke yesterday, the market was like, I think the odds of them doing 50 basis points at the next meeting went up like 10%. And like nothing changed, right? Except for Powell saying words. Um, So yeah, yeah, it just depends. And that ultimately, like the market kind of does the job or the Fed's jobs for it to a certain extent, if that that happens. Yeah. So let's talk about nickel. What's been happening in the nickel market? Yeah, that's been pretty wild. Uh, It's gone back down. But I mean, that was sort of interesting, too, from the whole commodities perspective, where this uh, got this tycoon in China who owns uh, like a pig nickel shop, pig iron nickel, which is the cheaper version of nickel. He just has a huge short position on nickel. And LME kind of allowed him to just accumulate this massive short position. And then when Russia invaded, like the whole thing just went crazy. And then all, you know, the shorts had to sort of hedge against everything or cover their shorts. And, um, and then the price of nickel exploded, the LME canceled trades and they were like, Oh, this just won't happen. I think it was $4 billion in, in trades were canceled, which is quite a bit of money. And, and then all of a sudden people, when the LME reopened, they had to buy back at prices that they did not want to buy back at. Um, and the whole question now becomes like, what's the credibility of the LME can exchange? Like, are they really supposed to be canceling trades like that? Um, yeah. So it's a whole saga, right? Like how, how is this even allowed to happen? And then what, do, what does it mean in the aftermath? I've had some bad trades that I'd like to put back <laughs> after the fact. Yeah, I would what's, too. What's the time period when you can call up and say, I don't want to take it back? I don't know. It'd be nice to reverse the decade and just go long the S and P. Yeah, wouldn't mm. lever it up. Yeah. So that that nickel one was a weird one because so the the guy is a nickel producer, but the nickel that he produces is not. He can't exchange it for. It's a different grade of nickel, mm-hmm. and so it doesn't work that way. Yeah, and so like I, I'm not sure what they kind of settled on in terms of him figuring out how to pay because he it was like eight billion dollars in potential losses and i don't know exactly how much ended up being losses for him but there was talk that he would like exchange some of his pig nickel iron for re- the re- iron pig nickel from for regular nickel from the like china the government of china has a stow of nickel and so he would exchange there and then they would be able to make the deal um but yeah and, that, and then when he developed this pig nickel i feel i hope i'm saying the right term and sorry if I'm not, but it's like a cheaper version of nickel. When he developed that, that sent the whole market into a tailspin back then too. So he's just always mm. been sort of like messing with the market. Um and, and very like bigly, uh, you know, having the short position that he did, everybody knew about it. And I think his nickname is Big Shot. Um so yeah, like it's just kind of ridiculous <laughs> that all of it was able to go down. But that's commodities, I guess. Hmm. It really is a it's a different world to equities. It's, I guess it's a it's a completely wild west frontier where they just they do whatever they want, bust trades after they're done. Yeah. Have you ever heard of that before? Is that trades being busted after the fact? No. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it. It's it's just not a good look for the exchange, right? Because how can you trust them after that? And so I know a lot of people aren't going to do business with LME after this, but. Do you have alternative other alternatives? I don't know. Like where else do you trade nickel? I'm not sure. Um, that's kind of the biggest one. So, yeah. Bill, did you have, do you have any thoughts on the uh, Berkshire acquisition of Allegheny? I don't. Uh, I I think it 
I think if Buffett is buying an insurance company, my thoughts are not as valid as his. <laughs> yeah, it's an eleven billion dollar acquisition. I thought. So yeah, I mean, it's like right in his wheelhouse. I'm sure it would be a good compliment to his assets. I I I think they I think I, I heard from my man Francisco that they have a go shop. I haven't really looked into it. Um that would kind of suck because they'll probably get outbid outbid. It's been floating around as one of the cheaper names out there, but I don't know if it was I mean, I don't know if it ever qualified as being a particularly good name. I don't know. I don't want to be getting hit. I mean, I you know, I, I just uh I hesitate to speak on insurance uh because there are people like Chris Bloomstram out there that actually know what they're talking about. Um and I don't. But I I suspect that this will go down as a nice addition to the portfolio once it's all said and done. Hopefully it ends up in the portfolio. It may not. What about Oxy? Got any I think the guy Oxy? likes oil. I mean, a fair amount of people have been like, you know, he's never bought oil well. Uh, so maybe oil is the thing that he doesn't know how to time. Interesting. Uh, well, he did, he did okay with that Chinese CNOOC, whatever that was, China National... Yeah, but I think he messed up. Six Didn't he mess up like something. Chevron in 07 or something? And I don't know. I, I think uh, he's obviously always liked those assets, right? And he played in a part of the capital stack to get that acquisition done. So now maybe the thesis that he had in the beginning of like financing that transaction is actually coming to fruition and he thinks that people are going to have capital discipline this time and that this time may actually be different. It's never really, uh, it, it's not, it's not a prognostication on the trajectory of oil, right? Well, I mean, I think you need to have oil work above your break-even cost, right? So, I mean, the price of oil is going to impact what the firm is worth. Right. But I suspect that he thinks that it works at lower prices. It was, it was doing a right at sixty bucks. It was making money at sixty bucks. Yeah. So I bet, I bet his bet is that we really settle closer to eighty or something like that, and it works at sixty. Buffett likes the chemicals business within Oxy. Yeah, maybe. Those, oh, I don't know. Chem, those chemical businesses are pretty thin margin too, aren't they? They don't make much money. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no idea. You're talking about the Permian, which I know nothing about for real. I know it's a basin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's but look, he's get. he's liked it, you know, and uh, he's got the best energy company probably in the world, and now he's got some pretty serious interests in a, you know, in the Permian. So it seems to be aligned with the energy portfolio. And I think it hedges some of his, uh, you know, if your insurance claims go up, uh, like, you know, if materials cost more or whatever, uh, maybe he feels like it hedges. I don't know. I don't know Price, how he runs his book. Prices are allowing Oxy to de-lever way faster than expected. No more chemical plants will be built. Yeah. Kyla, do you follow any investors? Do you, like, are there, like, do you follow Druckenmiller or any of the, the macro guys? Oh, I follow more people on on Twitter. Um, so so not on Twitter. <laughs> that's uh, no, there are, there are, yeah. So, but like in terms of like big 
names. Um, I just try to learn from as many people as possible. I don't really have, this is probably bad to like admit, but I don't really have like a philosophy that I'm super aligned with at the moment. Like, like Buffett, I just sort of watch from afar. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of good investors on Twitter who tweet really good thoughts. Um, you just kind of have to sort through the, everything else to find them. Yeah, that's fair. The drug's I don't been disagree. Out, the drug's been out front and center a little bit more recently, not saying anything different to what mm-hmm. he normally says, but I like following the drug. He's a hard guy to follow because he'll say one thing one second and then flip around and turn it yeah, around the next. Yeah, he can fade himself really quickly. Yeah. That's one of the but, things I like about him. Yeah, I think that's cool. Um, he just made the point that well, I had a tweet about of his, something that he said last week where he was like, I've always made money in credit, but I make money in credit because I've just eight times in my entire investing career, it's completely dislocated. And when it dislocates, then I go in and have a look at it. <laughs> but if I was a credit investor, I'd have lost money, you know, eight times as well. I just so happen to, you know, I don't go there until it's dislocated. I kind of thought that was an interesting take. Is he implying that credit is dislocated right now? <sighs> That's a good question. I don't know why he was discussing it. I think that I think it was just a broad ranging interview where they brought that up. Mm-hmm. But it's possible, right? The way that it's running up, has it has anybody blown up in this space yet? Somebody uh-huh. was somebody was delivering an oil. The nickel guy's blown up. Mm-hmm. What about what about credit? I don't know of any specific names. I know Evergrande. That's not really credit specific. Have they right? blown up? They're like on the edge, right? They just keep on getting. It's like the slowest blow up ever. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But things are looking super bad. But you know they've got a big bailout. Uh, probably waiting for them. So, but in this credit specific sector, I don't think so. I did see an interesting statistic. This is a credit, but like there's been pretty much a dry up in IPOs, which I thought was interesting for the past like month or so, which I guess makes sense relative to the war. Um, Yeah. Well, private markets are trading at a premium. So it's tough to, uh, (laughs) it's tough to take an IPO out at a below your last mark. Do you all have thoughts on that broadly? Like kind of when that'll reconnect to reality if it will uh you need some things uh, yeah, to i have a lot of thoughts privately some are dumb privately <laughs> okay um what wait did you say talk about it privately i i think things need to fail like the the, the reason that the marks the marks don't the marks don't move because the marks are just somebody writing marking their own homework and they, they all give themselves four marks for their for their own homework right. but you need some failures which is a third party saying uh you know you can't pay your debt or mm. They're not. They're unlikely to be levered. Most of these things. I think it's. I think it's just third parties saying, uh, "Yeah, there's no way you're worth anywhere near that, and you're going to liquidate anyway." And I think when that happens, then they get reality because I think that the public markets are much closer to reality than the private markets are. Well, wasn't uh, was it on your podcast that Cliff was talking about, like when he was at Goldman, and I, I think he was saying like you know, his book would move around a bunch. And then the guys that were on private assets are like, oh, our books aren't moving There's at no all. There's no volatility like, now. The fuck they're not. <laughs> you know? But I, th- I think, uh, you know, that kind of, um, I think that helps allocators. Uh, I think everybody can say that they're doing their job if if they're not being marked all the time and public guys or and, and our participants, uh, you know, can't say that. So I think there's a lot of incentives to continue the behavior because mm. a lot of public, yeah. a lot of public investors are getting waxed by the index, and a lot of people are trying to figure out how to keep their jobs. And I think that's driving a lot of allocation to private. 
that was Charlie Munger's observation, right? That the when the allocators the allocators like the fact that there's no volatility in the book. You only get a mark once a month. Uh, it's a, Did Charlie it's not, say not that? But I think it was Charlie. Yeah, he said that there's a. Mm. They've um, mm. they've observed mm. that you know when you're marking your own homework, you don't you don't you don't see as much volatility as you do in the public markets. I mean, we we look at the public markets mm. all the time and say it's crazy that that price is there, right. and you either take advantage of it or you cry about it if you already own it. Yeah, yeah, mostly mostly the latter. Or you say that's a dollar, but there must be something that I don't understand. And then you watch it rip and you say, <laughs> ah, speaking of things that are ripped, Alibaba mm. back from the dead, Charlie Munger yeah. this year, greatest <laughs> investor ever. Smartest man alive. Mm. I think it's up like 10% today. I thought something crazy like that. Well, I'm just glad it was margined. He's means probably, his, his position oh, was up like 12.65 now. Just today. today. Do you know what the internet, the China internet sector is doing? Give me a, uh, give me a. I think it's KWEB. KWEB? ED. Plus yeah, crane A-E-B. shares, that's, that's 9%. Yeah, coming up on mm. nine. Man, last week that was down with like 60%. Right? Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Really big moves there. Yeah, so it's up, it's up almost 50% since the bottom on on March 14 last week, Monday last week. I mean, this chart is stupid. Like, this is something that I I do like kind of here for those on YouTube that want to see it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you go from 100 down to 31. And what was it last week? It was down at like 25 or whatever. I could see how uh, if you were a China-focused investor, you might argue that things have gotten disconnected from reality. Yeah, it hit 24 cheese. Yeah, that's a big run over a week. That's a 50% run over a week. It's 21 bottom on March 14 to 31 today. And the weird thing is, is all they did was come out and be like, we're going to take care of it. Like, don't worry. Like, there wasn't really anything. People have a lot of faith in the Chinese uh, government. Yeah. Yeah, Didn't they say it like three times though? (laughs) (laughs) So so that matters. Oh my gosh. Yeah. like. (laughs) What's the significance of saying it three times? I, I, I don't know. It's like a wish, Just, right? It means I think they really if you say it three times, something happens yeah. <laughs> in the <Got> mirror. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bloody Mary comes out. Um, no, I, I mean, I, it's still down, you know, 66%. Mm. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's how the math works. So it hasn't been great. Yeah. Baba is still down. Or oh, which? I don't know. I was talking about that KWEB. Yeah. But. Bubba. You know, just circling back, I, I pulled up these uh, these tax receipts. Shout out to my man, uh, Bill, who got me looking at this. The federal tax uh, deposits, year to date, withheld income and employment taxes are 1.5. What is my units? It's got to be trillion, surely. Yeah. Uh, whereas in 2019, they were 1.2. So wow. it's, it's 1.562 year to date. In 2019, it was 1.208. That's a lot of growth in good growth. You know, in in what people are actually getting paid. Uh, so, what does that impressive. include? So it's just salary data. Yeah, well, it's with withheld income and employment tax. Uh, individual income taxes are at 100. It look, I think this is billion 117.5. Uh, billion. Uh, sorry if my units are off. And then. Uh, in 2019, it was only 44.3 billion. So that's up a lot. 
corporate income taxes are up almost 70-ish percent, looks like, uh, from 83.2 to 141.5. So I don't know, like the tax receipts are pretty good. So what's the significance of the the customer data? Of the 19 comp because it's pre-COVID because it's not 2020, 21. Yeah, I just think 2020 was super wonky and I I just... uh, it makes sense. I just, I just look at everything for 2019, maybe because I don't want to admit that uh, the real world is messed Those up. Those two years happened. Those two years have just been stricken from the books. Didn't <laughs> That's happen. right. Yeah. yeah. You can do that. The LME is just said that those two years didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, LME. that's right. Uh, that's amazing. So we've, got, we've got Carla for another eight minutes. So shoot some questions in. Dude, somebody had a nice comment back here. I'll just see if I can. Oh, good. Love nice comments. Scroll back. <laughs> what are you up to now? Like, what am I doing with my life? Yeah. No, yeah. how many Twitter followers have you got? <laughs> just... No, no, not that. But like you were partnering with brands and, yeah. and uh, you know, what's going on in your life? Yeah, still doing that. Um, consulting with different brands, helping with media, uh, doing a lot of research. My newsletter uh, has been a big focus. I really love writing. And so I've been doing a lot of research there, still doing the YouTube videos, still doing the podcast, still doing the daily TikToks that are now posted on Instagram and get mixed in with other algorithms, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, so this has been, and I'm building like a financial education company in the background. So that gets um, a little bit of time during the day as well. So. That's cool. Where can people yeah. find you if they are interested? Oh, I just Google Kyla Scanlon. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Instagram uh, at Kyla Scan. Yeah. So how, um, how have your uh, reels, like, do you have a sense of engagement data on Instagram versus TikTok and whether or not reels uh, adopting that format has helped you? Oh yeah. Um, Instagram has been actually pretty nice. Um <laughs> I've grown faster on there than I would expect. It's still like a smallish account, like 18K, but um, that's been good. I get about the same amount of views on Instagram that I, as I do TikTok and TikTok. Really? I have, mm, yeah. And I have about 119K on TikTok and the engagement is a little bit higher caliber, I would say on Instagram. So like the audience, I'm not sure if like different people use Instagram versus TikTok, I'd imagine. Um, but the conversation is, is a little bit different within the comment section too, which is always cool to see like mm. how different people think about stuff um, versus TikTok is so inflammatory and there's so much anger. <laughs> um, mm. So that's been nice. Yeah. Yeah. Is that better on your psyche then? Uh, oh. Like I would think so. Yeah, like uh, I've I've been covering Russia Ukraine since November, so pre-invasion, and have kind of dealt with uh, Russian bots. I guess I'm not mm-hmm. sure, uh, and that that's it's just difficult, right? Like having people tell you that you're stupid and dumb, and that you should like go jump off a bridge, right? Uh, like that's just not fun to deal with. That seems like a harsh punishment for an yeah. Instagram video or a TikTok yeah. video, but oh. I get a lot of that on Twitter. But I think it's I think it's all true. So I, I think it's all earned. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think anybody earns it should have that um, be told to them. Yeah, social media is really strange how it allows people to say those things. Yeah, I've found you can. I've just turned all safety settings these days. So I just don't look at any, any of it. Yeah, uh, I've been. I've probably blocked more people in the past month uh, than I have my entire time on social media. It's just not worth it. Yeah. It's exponential growth, right? You just get exponentially bigger. You get exponentially more trolls. I guess so. That's good adver- a good advertisement for yeah for using it. 
Um, how do your uh, sorry to to dominate the questions, but how do your comments on Instagram compare to your uh, Twitter conversations? Oh, I love Twitter. Yeah, I, I love Twitter. Um, I would say I'm more of a lurker on Twitter. Um, so I like to see what other people are saying because I'm still learning, right? Like I'm, that's kind of my main goal is to like help people learn alongside me. So I would say like Twitter is the highest caliber conversation depending on uh, what threads you're in, right? Yeah, um, yeah I would say that, that, that like no, I probably learned more from Twitter than I did I, I really enjoyed college, but learned more from reading people's thoughts on Twitter and the papers that they link than I did in college. But I still think college is important. <laughs> yeah. Got a drink somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Got a party. So <laughs> did you say did you say get more engagement on oh, sorry, more views on TikTok, but more engagement on Instagram? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um what are the areas that are really ugly negative prices like oil? What are the areas I like that? Yeah. Oh, commodities in general. Are there um, any commodities that are selling off? Is there anything that's cheap? It's all the other way around. Oh, I think there's one, but I'm not going to be able to remember it. I guess nickel, right? Nickel has sold off a little bit. Um, there, There is one thing that's been moving. I want to say palladium, but that is not correct because Russia is a huge supplier of palladium. But yes, I, I think there's one commodity in the bunch that is is not. Yeah, I'd imagine. Is it, is it lumber? <laughs> no, lumber. Yeah, I mean, too. a little bit, a little, yeah. Yeah. not a ton. Why do why why if everybody is so happy to all of my ho- my home builders get keep on getting beaten up? Mm. Because everybody thinks that it's the the end of this cycle. But and I have in the past said do not buy cyclicals at low valuations, and I still think that that is sound advice. However. Uh, the, um, the home builders do look cheap. I mean, I think that they look, I, I'm wary of that too, but I think they look cheap. And I think that we've been under, you know, to, to steal Mike Mitchell's th- thesis, we've, they've been underbuilding for the last decade. Like you can see in that data, you can pull it off the Fred, Fred website. It's clear that it's like, they're just underbuilt by like yeah. half. There's, there's a chart going around that, and I wish I had liked it, but uh, where it shows, I think it's 2019 builds yeah. maybe, and it's like the rest. And so it's just, it's a huge disparity in how they've been building partly because of supply chains, as you all know, but yeah. yeah. I mean, we started over one seven last month was the print and uh, building permits were over one eight last month. I don't know. I'll tell you what, the, uh, the pump and dump crowd on the lumber thesis has been mighty quiet <laughs> over the past six months. Uh, and the homeboy Mike got levered long, so he wins and they lose, which is nice to see. Mike doesn't lose. They veil uh, Michael Price. Speaking of Mike, Michael Price uh, passed away over the last week. I don't think we called that out last week. Yeah, I think we missed that. Sad to see Mike Price go. Folks, uh, we're coming up on time. Kyla, thanks so much for helping us out with all the macro stuff. Um, If folks want to follow along with what you're doing and get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, yeah. I'm on Twitter at Kyla Scan. My DMs are open, uh, but I have to take a little bit of time to respond. (laughs) Uh, So sorry about that. But yeah, at Kyla Scan across most social media and then um, Substack, kyla.substack.com. YouTube is just Kyla Scanlon. Yeah, my name is just Kyla Scanlon. So if you Google that, most things come up because I think there's only like three other Kyla Scanlons in the world. So yeah, yeah. S-C-A-N-L-O-N. 
Correct. For those yeah. at home. Yes. Scan Toronto. You, BB? you want to do a shout out? Where, where, where can people follow you? Who, me? You. Yes, you, BB. <laughs> no, nah, man. People don't need to follow the me. They need less <laughs> this is in their life. This I appreciate the opportunity, but they can find me if they want to. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Carla. Thanks, folks. For-